0: You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Kasperson. Hey, everybody. Happy March. Spring is coming, man. There's signs of spring all over the Pacific Northwest. I'm loving it. Welcome so much. Welcome so much to the You Are Not Broken podcast. Super happy to be here. I did a thing this past week, you guys. I did a TED Talk a tedx talk i was in youngstown ohio which has amazing history um super enjoyed learning about that and incredible people there were 17 speakers I, I was a trip of a lifetime event of a lifetime to go through preparing and memorizing and perfecting a talk for a international stage of that caliber the t- the ted Caliber. TED, for people who don't know, Technology, Education, Design. It's been around for a long time. There are TEDx. So many TEDx now that there's one event happening every single day, every day of the year now. And super excited to be part of it. My talk, my idea we're spreading was why the world needs adult sex education. And I talked all about if we just knew if we just knew about our brain and we just knew about our bodies and we just knew about how to talk to people and we just knew about how society Fs us up about sex, we are already doing so much better than sitting in this like cave of shame. So it's not out yet. A couple weeks. has to go through post-processing and then get approved by the official TED people um, is what I've been told for getting this thing out. But Lord knows I'll be posting about it. You'll get an email. It'll be on my Instagram. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a adult sex ed course. So if you realize you do did not get sex ed and you like the way I teach and empower and cut through the bullshit, come and take my sex ed course. So that'll be uh, up on the website. I'll get a save your, save your spot email capture up there pretty soon. Maybe it's up there already. And um, save your spot for adult sex ed, top by yours truly, who did a damn TED talk on it, which I'm super stoked about. So that is welcome to March and welcome to my, thank you for coming to my TED talk. I'm drinking coffee. We're going to talk about hormones today and we're going to talk about sex today. I've had a couple cool things. I actually have a question from a member too. So, adult sex ed course that's coming out, but I have a membership, women's health and hormones membership. The cool thing about that is you can watch my podcast live. So, the people are watching me live right now, and you can email into my assistant and she gives me the questions and I answer your questions. I cannot give you medical advice, neither here nor on Instagram. Um, that's not how medicine and doctors work. But if you're a member, you get uh, a better chance that I'm going to be able to answer your questions. So here we go. So go go be a member. There's tons of content in there from hormones to sex ed, to how your body works, to all the guests, the videos of the guests I've, I've had on. A lot of the guest interviews for my podcast, you get to join live, which is super fun. Hang out with us, ask us questions. All right, let's go to the March agenda. First things first, I have talked about Women having bad sex. And one of the things I talk about is if they're doing it j- because they believe they have to, we call uh, pity sex, obligation sex, duty sex, whatever you bag, bad sex, whatever you want to call it. Um, and there was just a recent paper published that talks about this, which I'm super stoked about, published about a year ago, May 2022 in the Journal of Sex Research. The cool thing about me and my podcast, in case you were wondering, is nobody's sitting around, the average person is not sitting around being subscribed to the Journal of Sex Sex Research, which is different than the Journal of Sex Medicine. There's so many different journals. And like, it stays behind a paywall under lock and key, and average people don't know about this stuff. I think it's fascinating that people look at this. So they published an article last year called Motives Between the Sheets: Understanding Obligation for Sex at Midlife and Associations with Sexual and Relationship Satisfaction, Why is this important? It's important because we're looking at midlife people in long-term relationships. We're looking at not just college students because people love to research college students because they're captive audiences. Uh, We we need to research midlife people in long-term relationships because those are my people. So that's why I like this paper. I like that they looked at it. So I'm going to read this to you. Reasons for sex are associated with sexual and relational outcomes. The study investigated reasons for sex at last sex with a focus on obligation, which is kind of an avoidance motivation, right? Like I'm doing this to avoid of something bad happening. And uh, so either you're obligated to do it or they're looking at doing it because you think uh, you're doing something nice for somebody, which is considered an approach motivator. Uh, And these associations... With sexual and relationship satisfaction, while controlling for marital duration, age, and sexual desire, we investigated these reasons among married, midlife Canadian women and men, and 25 non-binary gender queer participants, all aged between 40 and 59 years of age. Obligation was reported as a reason for having sex by 12.4% of women and 1.8% of men. That's fascinating. That's like that alone is fascinating. Doing something nice was reported by 10% of women and 9.5% of men. Also very interesting. Uh, in regression analyses, women who reported having sex for obligation had significantly lower relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction than women who did not report this reason. Yeah. Just what I've been telling you guys. I'm telling you this. I'm so glad they did research on this. I'm proving our point. If you're doing it for somebody else out of obligation, you're not having a very good time. And then I don't wonder why you have low desire. In contrast, having sex to do something nice for one's partner was associated with higher sexual satisfaction among women. Findings indicate that having sex when feeling obligated may be associated with negative sexual and relational outcomes among midlife women. Yes, 100%. Why, why aren't the authors of these papers like doing good morning, America. This is important stuff. I also thought it was very interesting that only it was like 12.4 to 1.8 men to women uh, as citing an obligation. Very interesting. So I love that that paper came out. I, uh, I don't love that it took me a year to find it. How did it come up? Uh, I don't know. I think I was just looking at a different paper and I think it like came up. So clearly important research. I love it. Okay, next paper I want to talk about is called, the the title of the paper is kind of cute. It's called Darling, Come Lay With Me or Talk With Me Perceived Mattering and the Complementary Association Between Sex and Communication Within Marital Relationships. This one, oh, hold on, you guys. Okay, so the links to these are going to be in the show notes. The authors on the first paper I talked about were. Georgia Via Milhausen, and Quinn Nylas. And then the second paper here is Park, Suk Chong, and Kim. Again, link in, link in show notes. So what they're talking about in the second paper is feeling connected and a sense of mattering to one's spouse. Do you feel that you matter to one's spouse? And how important that is in, number one, your relationship, number two, your sexual health. So... According to the theory, I'm going to read this to you now. According to the theories on interpersonal mattering, reciprocal interactions and mutual engagements facilitate the formation of interpersonal mattering within relationships. However, the theoretical framework on mattering has rarely been applied to understand the roles of sexual and verbal exchanges within intimate relationships. To fill this research gap, the authors propose that heightened perception of mattering captures the common mechanism through which both frequent sex and communication predict greater marital satisfaction. So they're saying, yeah, yeah, we know that frequent sex and communicating are good for your marriage, but we, we want to know why. And they're saying the why is your sense of feeling of mattering. Building on this perspective, the study examined whether frequent sex and communication can compensate for the other in predicting marital satisfaction by sustaining the sense of mattering between spouses. So they did two surveys, and they showed that the perceived sense of mattering to spouse mediated the effects of both sexual frequency and communication quantity on the couple's overall satisfaction with their marriage. Moreover, the results of the moderated mediation analysis supported the hypothesis that sexual frequency and communication quantity Can moderate the effects of the other on marital satisfaction by providing a buffer on the couple's perceived sense of mattering to spouse. Dude, sex research gets dry and technical freaking quick. This like can be summed down. Like I'm going to, I'm going to sum this down to like one sentence. No shit, Sherlock. Make sure your partner knows that you matter. Boom. And showing your partner that they matter is incredibly sexy. And communication's important. <laughs> it's like it they get so technical and like publishing these papers, which nobody reads by the way, because they're locked behind firewalls in journals but um I'm just thinking like Instagram post like tell your partner that they matter. it's gonna help your sex life. There you go. you're welcome, okay, so. Moving on. Next study. This one was uh, Kovacevic, uh, Rosen, and Muse. Is spontaneous sex the ideal? Beliefs and perceptions of spontaneous and planned sex and satisfaction in romantic relationships. Link in show notes. So basically what they did was they said, like, how much do you believe that spontaneous sex is better than scheduled sex? And then they looked at that and they're like, of the people who held the belief and that, which is, remember, this is just society's myth that spontaneous sex is better, scheduled sex was less enjoyable for them, right? So, like, their actions went up against their beliefs. But if you didn't believe very strongly that spontaneous sex was more important or more valued than scheduled sex, then scheduled sex was just as good for you. So, your beliefs matter. Is basically the moral of this story. It says the findings may have implications for future research on shifting people's beliefs about sexual spontaneity and planning, perhaps most importantly within clinical samples, coping with a sexual challenge. But research is needed. Yeah. What they did was they looked at the lay people's belief about sexuality and tested the novel questions about how people's belief about spontaneous and planned sex are associated with sexual satisfaction. We found greater endorsement for a spontaneous sex belief, i.e. the myth or the belief that sex that just happens is satisfying than for a planned belief that sex that is planned is satisfying. So more people believed that spontaneous sex was better But those uh, who had higher planned sex belief were buffered from lower satisfaction when their last sexual experience was perceived as planned. You're be- basically, again, a whole bunch of like scientific researchy, blah, 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 summarizing it down. If you believe that planned sex is good when you have planned sex, it tends to be more good than if you believe that spontaneous sex is better. This is why we do research so we can take simple shit and make it technical. And prove what we always knew. All right, guys, next topic. Let's talk about breast cancer and, and hormones for a second. This is what I love. People are starting to go back and forth on Instagram about should women who've been treated for breast cancer, you're done with your treatment, your post-breast cancer treatment, should you receive hormones, either vaginal, which is considered local, or systemic, most commonly transdermal. The good news is we're talking about this. The good news is we're not all just saying, no, you should never be on hormones again. I'm actually starting to see people sent from oncologists for me to consider hormones for them post-breast cancer. They get an informed consent and they get the okay of their oncologist. This is a risk benefit conversation. This is not a blanket statement. Hormones are good or a blanket statement. Hormones are bad. This is women are suffering. Likely more women are suffering than necessary because of the blanket statement that no woman post breast cancer should ever get hormones. Dr. Men is an amazing gynecologist, breast cancer survivor on Instagram. I'm going to pull her up so you can follow her. Dr. Men, D-R-M-E-N-N-O-B-G-Y-N, Dr. Corinne Men on Instagram, um, does a lot on hormones post breast cancer. She's a breast cancer survivor and a gynecologist, and she was recently at a Young Survivors Conference, and she presented data on how few young survivors are on vaginal estrogen, Um, is very, very, very low. And we have lots and lots of good data. Um, We have two papers showing a possible increased risk of recurrence, not mortality. If you're currently on aromatase inhibitors and vaginal estrogen, there's a Danish study. um, And I'm putting the link in the show notes. Interesting thing about this Danish study, this is a Danish study, a um, retrospective chart review. So this is not randomized control trial. They looked at systemic and vaginal hormones after early breast cancer. Early breast cancer not meaning young, early breast cancer meaning like not uh, metastatic, right? So lower, lower stage. Systemic hormones were not associated with recurrence or mortality. The only thing that they saw was vaginal estrogen currently on aromatase inhibitors showing an increased risk of local recurrence, not distal recurrence, uh, and no change in mortality or survival. So that paper came out in 2022. This is just another paper to add to the pile of, it looks like hormones after fully treated, lower risk breast cancer is safe. Instagram loves easy stuff, right? Like Instagram just loves to get in all a big fight about are hormones good or are hormones bad? I'm here to tell you medicine is complex. Not all cancers created equal. Not all women are created equal. Not all risk benefits are created equal. But I think the tide is turning on if you've ever had breast cancer, you can never, ever have um, hormones. The tide is turning. And I've already seen this happen, you guys. I've seen this happen with prostate cancer. Now, the gynecologist did not see that happen with prostate cancer because they don't take care of men. But I take care of men. In the beginning of my training, prost- uh, t- testosterone caused prostate cancer. You could never ever have prostate cancer again. Sorry, you could never ever have testosterone again if you've been uh, had prostate cancer. And the tide is way turned on that now. Multiple studies. Showing safety. Men were miserable. We're here to try to treat symptoms and educate people. And we miss that. And we're not able to talk about how complex this is when we have 10-minute appointments with people. It's absolutely shitty how the doctor-patient relationship is now. And also people's belief that there's no risks to things, right? Does safe mean no risks? No, there's risks to medications, But I've seen this happen with prostate cancer, and I tell you it's starting to happen with breast cancer. So I'll post that um, paper. Get that paper. It's free online. It's not behind a paywall. Get that paper. Bring it into your doctor. Get an okay from your oncologist. Then you need to find somebody who will prescribe you hormones. They exist. All right. Basically, the summary of that paper. In postmenopausal women treated for early stage estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, use of vaginal estrogen therapy or menopause hormone therapy was not associated with an increased risk of recurrence or mortality. Print it out. Read the whole thing. All right. The next one I want to do is I want to do a question from one of my members. Go to kellycaspersonmd.com. I think slash membership off the top of my head and get into my women's health and hormones membership. Um, Otherwise, get on the waiting list for adult sex ed. If you want adult sex ed, great, go take that course. It's not up yet. It'll come out when the TED Talk comes out. And then the membership is for health and hormones, aka sex, health and hormones. (laughs) Okay. So here is my member's question. On the topic of pain with penetrative sex, what can go awry during the healing process from vaginal surgery for hysterectomy and prolapse repairs that might contribute to this? Pelvic floor therapy, lubricants, moisturizers, estrogen, and dilators are the armamentarium used, but what happens when they are used long-term, but there's still pain upon insertion even a year out from surgery? What else should a woman consider or ask about when advocating for her sexual health beyond the list above? What relationship does the less than perfect tissue healing have with the potential for pain? What can be done about this when the modalities listed above are exhausted? Such an amazing question. Very well written out. Lots of stuff to dive in for here. I haven't seen any papers showing poor wound healing as a trigger for pain. Um, I think there are people who have poor wound healing that have no pain, right? So I don't think it's a a hundred percent correlation there um, I think you listed the important things pelvic floor therapy, lubricants, moisturizers, estrogen, and dilators. when a woman comes and sees me and she has pain with insertion and she's had pelvic uh surgery, and she says she's tried those. I usually want to know if she's still on them, right if she's still doing it what Dose of estrogen is she doing? Is she putting the estrogen just in the vagina or on the vulva and the vault? Is she um, can she be on systemic hormones? right? Maybe that's something to consider. But a lot of the times her tissue is still tight and it's still low estrogen. so i I never believe without doing an exam that she's well estrogenized. You need to have somebody who knows what they're looking at down there right? Like how many times do I have patients come see me and they've been the three gynecologists and they've been told their exam is normal, but they have pain. And I look at them and I'm like, you do not have enough estrogen down here. Your tissues are thin. Your tissues are tight. Um, the role of laser was another thing that she had asked about. Her next question was, I've read about non-surgical radiofrequency treatments. Radiofrequency is different than laser. Um, I'd, we don't have great radio frequency. Radio frequency is really for incontinence, and we don't have great data on it. I'd say more laser for resurfacing, for treating scars um, from surgery is what I would think. If, if you're going to pick and pay money, because again, insurance doesn't cover radio frequency or lasers, um, pick lasers. I think laser plus estrogen plus physical therapy is like my three legged stool of pelvic dysperonia which is the medical term for pain with sex. The other thing you haven't uh, listed out here that I think is incredibly important is the role of the brain on pain. I cannot get it through society's thick, thick skull at this point in my career that pain comes from the brain and we set up pain cycles and we've had pain in our pelvis and now we get tight in the muscles when we anticipate penetration because we fear pain. Even if we fear it subconsciously. Right, maybe not cognitively, but subconsciously. Um, so, are you doing self-touch, self-masturbation by yourself to set up a pleasure cycle, not just a pain cycle? I would say be successful with yourself, um, then bring in a partner. Because if the only time your vagina is seeing penetration is with an erect penis, like we gotta we gotta set that up better. The other thing to think about is um, mental health therapy, sex therapy, really working with the pain sex uh, like feedback loop. In addition, we got to step back 10,000 feet. This is what all the sex experts are going to tell you about this situation. Why is sex for you in your vagina? 30% of women will orgasm from vaginal penetration. We know that the vagina penetration is not what matters or is even necessary. Now you can say you liked it and you are mourning the loss of it. It's perfectly fine. But I'm saying we have to take an expanse, more expansive view of what sex is. And you just keep trying to put something in your vagina. Is that truly what's fulfilling you sexually? Now you're going to come back at me and you're going to say, but he wants to put something in my vagina. Yes, that's nice. I understand. Does he want you to run a 5k when your ankle's broken? Cause it hurts. And if he keeps wanting to do things, to you that hurt, I question if the communication has, is as good as it can be. Again, sex therapy, sex therapy. Um, and this is me being blunt on a podcast, but you know what I'm like. People know what I'm saying. She's just trying to put something in her vagina. That's very different than her trying to have a satisfying sex life. It's very different than her communicating to her partner. What else do you need to feel close to me besides putting something in my vagina? Because it hurts right now and I need to work on that. Right. Please refer to a previous portion of this podcast where I talk about obligation sex not being as sexually satisfying and also obligation sex not having as good of a relationship. So I would worry, I wonder about the role of obligation sex in this whole question. We got to clean that up. Sex therapists can definitely help us. Um, so, yeah, I would say in summary, make sure you're, you've got enough hormones down there. Make sure we're using a good lubrication oil or, um, silicone based because water-based lubes are, they, they get soaked in really fast, right? So they're not as soothing, um, communication with your partner. What are your actual goals? Um, sex therapy, pain, manage pain management, as far as therapy goes. Um, that's what I would think about. All right. Well, I have one Last thing I want to talk to you guys about, and it is the hot, hot topic of testosterone in women. As if, like, hormones after breast cancer is not the hottest topic, testosterone in postmenopausal women is hot, hot, hot right now, too. And going, I mean, please, please refer to previous me in the fact that, like, gynecologists do not know what they're doing with testosterone. God bless the ones that do. Um, But I would say the majority of them are either afraid of testosterone, so don't touch it with a 10-foot pole, or they don't know what they're doing, so they just give you pellets and don't think that there's another option. So good on the North American Menopause Society's Practice Pearl, which just got released March 9th, 2023. So good on them for this coming out. Testosterone use for hypoactive sexual desire disorder in postmenopausal women. This is a nice abbreviated document compared with the ishwish testosterone guidelines for hypoactive sexual desire which are also free on the internet feel free to print them out bring them into your doctor but i would say print out these this nam's practice pearl just google it it's written, the first author sharon parrish who's amazing internal medicine highly highly well regarded in the sex med circle she needs to be on my podcast i need to reach out these are things i need to do here we go I'm going to read this to you guys. Just bring this podcast into your doctor. Decreased sexual desire with distress has an estimated U.S. prevalence of 12% in women aged 45 to 64 years. Hypoactive sexual desire disorder is defined as a persistent or recurrent deficiency or absence of sexual fantasies and desire for sexual activity with marked distress or interpersonal difficulty. A thorough clinical assessment should involve identification, modification, and management of biological, psychological, sociocultural, and interpersonal contributing factors before testosterone therapy is considered. Try doing that in a 10-minute doctor visit, right? Which is why, please see previous uh, You Are Not Broken, Stop Shooting All Over Your Sex Life book published by me and this podcast, because I cannot do that in a 10-minute clinic visit. Like Women need to understand the complexity of this wonderful thing called sex. Before you just come in and try some testosterone. Evaluation includes asking about all aspects of sexual functioning, including arousal, orgasm, and pain, as well as targeted physical and gynecologic examinations and laboratory testing when indicated. Testosterone modulates sexual behavior. Testosterone and its precursors are synthesized by the ovaries and adrenal glands, with about 50% of circulating testosterone produced by peripheral conversion of androgen precursors. Androgen levels decline with age and dropped abruptly after bilateral oophorectomy. Although serum testosterone levels do not correlate with the presence or absence of hypoactive sexual desire disorder or its severity, there is a correlation between testosterone concentration during therapy and improvement in sexual desire. Transdermal testosterone dosed in a normal premenopausal range improves sexual desire and reduces sexually associated personal distress in naturally and surgically menopausal women with HSDD with and without concurrent estrogen and progestogen therapy. It also improves the frequency of satisfying sexual events, arousal, orgasm frequency, pleasure responsiveness, and self image. So. Do we have an FDA-approved female testosterone product in this country? No, we do not. Is that a problem? Yes. But if we did, I guarantee you it would be effing expensive and no insurance would cover it. So we can do a cheap option. We can use a male dose, gel usually, and uh, dose it to women, which is one-tenth the dose. It's actually pretty easy. Uh, Australia is the only country that has a female physiologic dosing product. Transdermal testosterone administered in physiologic doses for 24 weeks in a clinical trial resulted in an increase in acne and hair growth without other androgenetic effects seen with supraphysiologic levels, which would be voice deepening and hair loss. Lipid profiles, carbohydrate metabolism, cardiometabolic markers, and renal and liver functions were unaffected. Mammographic breast density did not change with transdermal testosterone, but trials were inefficient to assess long-term breast cancer risk. Whom to treat? Transdermal testosterone is recommended for postmenopausal women with HSDD not related to modifiable factors or comorbidities. How to do it? Clinicians should provide and obtain informed consent, including a comprehensive discussion of off-label use as well as benefits and risks. Compounded pellets cannot be recommended because of lack of efficacy and safety data. When an approved formulation for women is not available, it is reasonable to prescribe off-label an approved formulation for men at approximately one-tenth of the dose for men. Transdermal therapy provides the most physiologic form of replacement. Intramuscular injections and subcutaneous implants, aka pellets, should be avoided because they result in supra-physiologic levels. And oral preparations are not recommended because of possible adverse lipid effects, including reduction in HDL cholesterol and increase in LDL cholesterol. The starting dose for women should be one-tenth of a 1% testosterone tube or packet approved for daily use in men, which typically equates to three tubes or packets per month. Transdermal preparation should be applied to the back of the calf, upper outer thigh, or buttock. Patients should be counseled about potential transference from the application site to the skin of young children, female partners, and pets, whereas the risk of exposure to a male partner is minimal. Patients should be monitored for clinical response to treatment, including increase in sexual desire and decrease in personal distress. Women typically note an improvement in their sexual function six to eight weeks after initiating treatment, although it may occur as early as four weeks, with maximal effects on sexual desire and satisfactory sexual events typically occurring at about 12 weeks. Reduction in sexually associated personal distress occurs at about four weeks with a continued downward trend over six months. Treatment should be discontinued after six months of lack of clinical meaningful improvement and other causes and treatments for HSDD should be re-explored. Ongoing therapy may be needed to maintain the improvement in HSDD. Total testosterone levels should be assessed three to six weeks after initiating therapy. If the dose is increased, total testosterone should be repeated within six weeks. When testosterone levels are maintained in the premenopause range, androgenic adverse events are rare. If the level is supraphysiologic, dose should be reduced with a repeat blood test after two to three weeks. Serum testosterone concentration should be monitored every four to six months once stable levels are achieved. Measurement of baseline liver function and fasting lipid profile is recommended. So clinical pearl transdermal testosterone is recommended for postmenopausal women with HSDD not primarily related to modifiable factors or comorbidities. Clinicians can use the global position statement and the ISHWISH clinical practice guideline for more detailed treatment guidelines. Find this NAMS Practice Pearl on menopause.org. All right, guys, that's March, March Live. I love you guys so much. Um, Join the membership. Come hang out. Get these podcasts immediately. Ask your questions and stay tuned. Get on the email list for the upcoming adult sex ed to follow the amazing TED Talk. Happy spring, guys. I love you so much. Hey, friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com slash membership. I'll see you on the inside.